All right, we're in the Gospel of Mark. Well, you can, really. If you can't spell Agajanian and you live in the valley, you're in trouble. But anyway, we're in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 21 this morning. Please open your Bible or navigate on your device. Mark 8, 1 through 21. The topic, the Pharisees rudely demand a sign, but Jesus says that no sign will be given to them. The title of our message, No Sign for You. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning thus far. We're excited to break open your word and to receive from you. We thank you for the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this place. We're reminded, Lord, uh, that when you wrote to the churches in the Revelation, you said that you walked among them and ministered heart to heart, Lord. And so we pray that we would sense and know your presence in a special way here today as the word is taught. We thank you, we praise you, we do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. It's called situational awareness. Jason Bourne has it. In The Bourne Identity, there's an early scene where he's sitting in a diner trying to figure out who he is and why he has a bunch of passports and a gun stashed in a safety deposit box and a bank account number written on his leg. He also notices that he's aware of things that other people don't really notice at all. For example, he knows that he can recite the license plates for all six vehicles in the parking lot. He knows the waitress is left-handed, and he knows the guy at the counter weighs 215 pounds. Maybe Mission Impossible is more your speed. After their mission failed and most of his team was killed, Ethan Hunt recognizes that the folks in the cafe he's in, they're a second IMF team that was also present during his mission. He goes around the room identifying each one. By far the most fun film example of situational awareness is a scene in The First Men in Black while looking for the best of the best of the best in the shooting simulator, everyone else is killing the monsters that pop up, not Will Smith. He shoots the cardboard cutout of an eight-year-old girl. He explains, I saw little Tiffany. I'm thinking, you know, eight-year-old girl, middle of the ghetto, bunch of monsters, this time of night with quantum physics books. She's about to start something. She's about eight years old. Those books are way too advanced for her. If you ask me, I'd say she's up to something. Now, he was right because he possessed a situational awareness that the other candidates didn't. Jesus possessed marvelous situational awareness, not because he was God and therefore omniscient, while he was on the earth, he voluntarily set aside the independent use of his deity in order to be submitted to his Father and to walk as a Spirit-filled man. Jesus did sometimes receive what we would call a word of knowledge that gave him information he could not have known as a mere man, like knowing a woman had touched his garment or knowing that a woman had been married five times and was currently living in sin with another man. Other times, however, his awareness was more a matter of his own compassionate observation. We see an example of this in the feeding of the 4,000 when he says, I have compassion on the multitude because they've now continued with me three days. They have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way for some of them have come from afar. Among the many, many things our passage has to teach us, one is that Jesus wants us to grow in situational awareness, especially spiritually, in order to better serve him and spread the gospel. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, become more aware of the situations of those around you. And number two, become more aware of the situations that surround you. Let's take a look, first of all, at others around us in verses 1 through 10. 
Now, since a lot of you are military or law enforcement, firefighters or other emergency services, you probably have above average to excellent situational awareness. It may come naturally to you and your training has enhanced it. Well, that's good, but we're exploring spiritual situational awareness as the prerequisite to serving others by the leading and the empowering of God, the Holy Spirit. And so we begin in verse 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days. They have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. We mostly criticize the large crowds that followed Jesus for seeking him only for what they might get from him in terms of a miracle or a healing or an exorcism. This multitude was with Jesus three days. Nothing miraculous is reported as happening among them. Jesus hadn't even fed them like he had a previous multitude. It seems he was preaching to them, he was teaching them, and that they were interested in the food of the Word of God, and they weren't worried about their daily bread or their other needs. Now it was hungry time. Now, spiritual situational awareness starts with compassion. We talked a great deal about compassion when we studied the feeding of the 5,000. As a summary of that teaching, I'd say that the way to be more compassionate to others is to remember the Lord's compassion towards you. No one, in a sense, was less deserving of the Lord's help than you were. And that's true, of course, of all of us. While we were yet sinners, not, worse than that, the enemies of God, Jesus went to the cross and he died for our sins. It was John Bradford in the 1500s who used to say any time he saw prisoners being led to their execution, but for the grace of God, there goes John Bradford. We've adapted it, rightfully so, I believe, by saying, but for the grace of God, there go I. And if we'll remember that, if we'll carry that on our hearts, we will understand the Lord's compassion for us, and we can't help but have compassion on others. It didn't take omniscience or a word of knowledge to realize that people who hadn't eaten in three days were hungry and that they might have a difficult journey home without some sustenance. When is the last time I went three days without eating only to walk 20 or 40 miles? I'll tell you when, never, that's when. At Disneyland, it's nothing to rack up 10 or so miles a day walking around. It's fueled by churros and turkey legs and dull pineapple whip. So that, that's about as difficult a journey as I can take. It's like going from one of those stations to the next to fuel up. In verse 4, it says, Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Now, the disciples get slammed in the commentaries for being so dull. Didn't Jesus recently feed another much larger multitude? When we were there, we talked about the 5,000, and it specified it was men. And so we speculate that there were women and children, upwards of 15, 20, 25,000 people. This is a crowd of only huh, 4,000. Well, relatively speaking. And, and so uh, they had seen what Jesus did to that larger multitude had they learned nothing from that. Well, the incredible reaction of the disciples has actually led some commentators to the erroneous conclusion that for some reason this is a bad retelling of the previous story. It isn't. Mark goes out of his way to let you know this miracle is different. 
The number of people fed is different. The first miracle took place in Galilee near Bethsaida. This miracle took place outside of Decapolis. In the first miracle, Jesus started with five loaves and two fish, while here he had seven loaves and a few fish. The 5,000 had been with him one day. The 4,000 had been with him three days. Twelve baskets of fragments were left over after the 5,000 were fed, but only seven baskets after the 4,000. There were even two different kinds of baskets used if you read the Greek. For the 5,000, there were small wicker lunch baskets, sort of like a backpack or, as I joked then, a man bag. Uh, for the 4,000, large hampers big enough to hold a man, like the basket that let Paul down over the roof in Damascus so that he could escape. Now, were the disciples really that dull to so quickly dismiss and forget the feeding of the 5,000? I say maybe. I'm that dull. No matter how many scrapes I get in and the Lord gets me out of, I always wonder if he can do it again when the next trial comes along. I would like to say, and so would all of you, that trials just, you know, are like water on a duck. It's, ah, oh, another trial. The Lord will get me through. But there's always that anxiety, that's, there's that worry, there's that nervousness, wondering if the Lord is going to come through. Uh, and so that's just part of our, our fallen human nature. And so I, I, don't, I, I don't give these guys a pass, but I see this as a possibility. But there is something else to factor in regarding the disciples' reaction to the 4,000. Everyone agrees that this crowd consisted of primarily Gentiles. Uh, Decapolis was in Israel, but mostly Gentiles lived there. The disciples said, how can one satisfy these people, meaning non-Jews? The mission of Jesus, as stated by him, was to bring salvation to the Jews. When Jesus sent the disciples out, he specified that he was sending them only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus had made his to the Jew first mission clear to the Syrophoenician woman who came seeking a miracle in the previous chapter. True, Jesus helped her in the end, delivering her daughter from a distance from a demon, but it would be quite a leap in the disciples' thinking to suppose Jesus would perform large-scale miracles for the Gentiles. I think the disciples knew what Jesus could do, but didn't think he would do it, not at that time, not for those people. If we're wanting to grow in our awareness and be used to serve the gospel, we need to drop an us versus them mentality and mindset. We need to see every person as someone the Lord can serve and can save. And I, I think that, I don't want to get into it too much, but all of us at some level, have an us versus them mentality. There's, there's somebody who is them in your life that you have a hard time with. Could be a person, could be a people group, could be anything. But we need to drop that and see people as, uh, as individuals whom Christ died for. And next, we must stop limiting the Lord by thinking that though he could do something, he won't. Why would we think like that? Well, in some cases, our theology limits what the Lord can do. Let me give you an example. There are those who don't believe that Jesus died for everyone. They limit his atoning work on the cross. And that kind of theology is going to limit what you think the Lord is going to do or can do. And it's eventually going to lead to a lack of evangelism entirely as time goes on. And so we fall into these traps sometimes. Check this out. This is the only time Jesus says of himself that he has compassion of himself. 
He says, I have compassion. Other times people just saw it in him. And it is to a Gentile multitude, not just the elect nation of Israel, but I have compassion, he says, upon whosoever is in this crowd. Keep that in mind. Now, we also limit God by wanting him to keep working in the same way through the same ministries we're comfortable with. We always want the Lord to fit into our plan, do what he's done before, no more, no less. Let's instead have an excited anticipation that the Lord can and will do something wonderful. Why not here, why not now, ought to be our heart's cry. Our part is to observe and to step up and be used, just offer ourselves to the Lord and see what he wants to do with it. Now, verse 5, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Now, this is interesting. When Jesus fed the 5,000, the meager food was collected from the crowd. This time, the disciples had to use their food. Sooner or later in your walk with Jesus Christ and many times over the years, you're going to be challenged to dip into your own resources to help others. I think many Christians do not grow in spiritual awareness simply because when faced with an opportunity to help in a practical way by using your own resources, you can refuse. And there's a million reasons why some good, some not so good, but just in general, uh, the Lord said, you guys, you guys have bread, right? Yet some loaves, let's use what you have and start feeding people. Now, we don't solicit your money here. What you give or do not give, that's between you and the Lord. And since we don't solicit your money, when we get to a, a money passage in the scripture, I can say what I'm going to say with a clear conscience, knowing that it isn't some trick to try to coerce you to give. You know, there's, there's too many churches like that where, you know, they, they're really more interested in your wallet than your witness. And that's not true of us, uh, and you know that. Uh, the, the most we've ever done is kind of let you know we were going to buy a building and, and tell you some of the terms, but we've never solicited funds. So let me say what I'm going to say with a clear conscience. We're talking about spiritual awareness. Look around you. What do you see? Well, you see a building with utilities and grounds to maintain and furnishings. Beyond those material things, you see staff and missionaries and mission opportunities and ministries galore. All of that gives you opportunity to give. And so the question is, do you give? It's between you and the Lord. But if you can come here and give nothing or very little, then at the very least, I would say you do not have situational awareness. You're not thinking at all about what's going on around you. You're just assuming that other people are stepping up. And so it's just something to think about this morning. Verse 6, so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took seven loaves and gave thanks. He broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said, uh, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and they were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000. And he sent them away. So the total crowd was 4,000. Not just 4,000 men. There were 4,000. And he sent them away. And immediately they got into the boat with his disciples. And came to the region of Dalmanutha. Now, observing the need of the crowd, the disciples were asked to contribute, and the Lord multiplied their giving as he saw fit. Whether it's just you giving out a blanket to one homeless person or God multiplying it into a national blanket ministry, that's not up to you. 
Ask the Lord to help you be more aware, then be ready to act, even sacrificially, upon what he shows you. That's the first lesson. Then you want to become more aware of the situations that surround you. Well, what do I mean by that? I mean that Jesus puts each of us in situations that are for our learning and growth, but we can miss their impact by thinking materially rather than spiritually. With all this talk about observing the plight of others, we can forget that God is still always at work in us, changing us moment by moment, day by day, into the image of his son, Jesus. We are his work in progress, and that means the situations that surround us are designed or at least utilized by him to chisel and hammer away, making us more like his son. Now, you're going to see what I mean when we get to the disciples, but first we see a vicious verbal attack by some Pharisees. And so verse 11, then the Pharisees came out and they began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. Now, we immediately think, guys, Jesus has been doing tons of things that prove he's the Messiah. He just fed miraculously 4,000 people. And we pointed out in the feeding of the 5,000 that these were things that were predicted that the Messiah would do. They were the evidence. They were the credentials of their Messiah. It's true, but they were demanding a sign from heaven. They wanted some kind of independent verification in the heavens. Maybe the sun standing still as it did for Joshua while he was in conquest of the promised land. I guess they had forgotten that God spoke from heaven at Jesus' baptism, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That was pretty dramatic and pretty direct from heaven. So seeing isn't believing. John in his gospel said that if all the things Jesus did were written in books, the world would not be large enough to contain them. Signs do not produce faith. They only produce a craving for more signs. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How does your faith grow? Not by seeing miracles, but by studying the Word of God. Now, testing him here means tempting him. This was similar to the devil's tempting of Jesus in the wilderness, where he asked him to put his miraculous power on display. In essence, the Pharisees were demanding that Jesus do a sign at their bidding, at their command. We want you to have a sign from heaven right now to prove who you are. They were looking for a Messiah who would do their bidding using his power in ways that they could control. They were looking essentially for a genie who would grant them their every wish, thinking only materially, not spiritually. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. No sign here means not the kind of sign they were asking for. He had done plenty of things. He would do plenty more, including rising people from the dead and rising from the dead himself. In fact, in Matthew's account of this same dispute, he records Jesus as saying, except for the sign of the prophet Jonah, referring to his future resurrection from the dead. Uh, Mark was writing more to a Gentile audience, and he chose to edit out that comment, thinking that maybe some Gentiles would think the Jonah story was a bit fishy, and so they, uh, like people do today, it's an old joke, but you can still laugh. Come on. I bet some of you have comedy albums at home that you listen to, right? How can a joke be funny the second time? Well, mine are all secondhand jokes, so you get used to it. God's sign is Jesus. 
his life, his death, his resurrection from the dead, just as it is recorded for us in the Bible. The human race doesn't need anything else. Indeed, there's no other way to be saved. There's no other name among men by which we must be saved. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so maybe you're here this morning, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is seeking to draw you to Christ. He wants to enable your heart to receive Jesus Christ by His grace. Uh, you need to see yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Savior is none other than Jesus. Verse 13, and he left them, getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Have you heard of the Jesus boat? How many of you have heard of the Jesus boat? A few of you? It's an ancient fishing vessel from the first century A.D. It was discovered in 1986 on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee in Israel. The remains of the boat, it's 27 feet long and seven and a half feet wide. They first appeared during a drought when the waters of the sea, which is really a great freshwater lake, receded. There's absolutely no evidence connecting the boat to Jesus or his disciples. It's a tourist trap. He did have a boat, undoubtedly just like that one, that was pressed into service as kind of a water taxi. And so they had this fishing boat ready for them all the time to get around. You never know how the Lord can use your stuff to serve the gospel. When I was first saved, one of the popular Christian financial advisors uh, had a chapter in his book uh, called Ministering Currency, which is still a, a weird connection of words. But his idea was that you could turn anything into a currency that could minister for the Lord. And, and so the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is bumper sticker on your car. And so you turn your car into something that can minister to people. Now, there's a fine line between weird and witness. Uh, you've all seen these vans that drive around that are covered with stickers. Don't ever get into one of those vans, by the way. Uh, they may, the Lord may be directing that. Uh, they may be hearing from the Lord. I, I will find out in it, but just don't get into the van. Uh, just be a, show a little caution there. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with a bumper sticker or something on your car. I mean, when you buy a new car or even a used car, they're careful to put the license plate frame that says, you know, Freeway Toyota or Keller Motors, get a Keller deal, that kind of thing. So they must think that that kind of stuff works and that people read it, and you do read that. I was behind, I'm going to get in trouble right now, but uh, I was behind a truck yesterday that actually had the license plate Raider One Fan. Seriously? I mean, how into football can you be? And the Raiders? And then I was noticing, I'm sorry, here's what I want to get to. Have they not changed their logo for a hundred years? Is it, have you seen the Raider logo lately? The, you know, the, the little George Blanda face, the little tiny helmet, and he's got a patch and the swords behind him. Let's modernize if you want people to follow you. But people seem to be into it. And so this guy, I hope you're not here today, uh, but... <laughs> I'm not saying it's kind of an us versus them thing at this point, but uh, if you're here, you're here to hear this and get saved. But anyway, <laughs> this guy wants everybody to know he's part of the Raider Nation. He had a big Raider sticker on the back of his truck, his lifted truck. He's got his personalized license plate. 
And so we can do that. Uh, and, and when I was uh, first saved, you could buy Christian clothing, one-way shoes that, you know, that, the one-way thing, and you had ties that had stuff on it and different uh, jewelry and stuff. So just something to throw out there. Uh, so the Lord wants to use your stuff. And uh, you're going to advertise for somebody, advertise for Jesus. Uh, I wonder if they gave their boat a name. Do you ever think about it? I think about weird things early in the morning when I'm drinking my first cup of coffee. And I thought, I wonder if this Jesus boat had a name. Something like, like the Compassion Cruise or something like that. Or uh, Hope Floats maybe would have been... <laughs> And so, hey, see, and not right now because I want you to continue to listen, but see if you can't come up with a clever name for the Jesus boat that he used to use. I bet you can. Uh, verse 14, now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Now, it seems that the disciples had individual assigned duties to perform in support of Jesus and his itinerant ministry. We know for sure Jesus kept the money bag. He was the treasurer. Not a good choice, but that's the way it uh, worked out. Now, there must have been some confusion about who was supposed to buy groceries that day. So they ended up on the boat with a single loaf. They would need to buy more bread when they got where they were going. Then he charged them, saying, verse 15, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, Jesus was using their everyday situation, their need to buy bread, to teach them a valuable lesson. If there were such a thing, his disciples should avoid buying bread from the bakeries of the Pharisees or the Herodians. Of course, there were no such bakeries, this was a totally spiritual lesson. You didn't go to the Pharisees or the Herodians to buy bread. And so when Jesus said this, it was obviously an analogy, a figure of speech, a spiritual talk. I'm not sure how much choice there actually was in bread in the first century. Today, it's crazy how many different loaves there are to choose from when all you really need is Hawaiian bread, right? Am I right? Jesus compared the teachings of the Pharisees and Herod to leaven, which is yeast. Now, we like yeast, but in the Bible, it's a symbol of sin in that it works secretly to corrupt something that starts out pure. So it's a, uh, it's, it's a leavening agent. It's a corrupting influence as far as an illustration in the Bible. And so the idea here is that they should desire the unleavened, pure teaching of the Word of God coming to them from Jesus, not the Word plus the teachings of these others. Added teachings puff up the Word, corrupting it. Now, the leaven of the Pharisees could all be categorized as legalism. Legalism is the belief you can be right with God by your outward performance of rites and rituals, most of which are added to the scriptures by the interpretation of rabbis, which took precedence over the scriptures. And we talked about ritual hand washing not long ago as an illustration. Now, many scholars believe that the Herodians looked to Herod as a Messiah, a savior of sorts, who would put the Jewish land in favor with the Roman Empire and bring blessings upon them. You might compare them with those who think that government, not God, is the answer. Uh, and so they were more politically minded and um, certainly not believers in any sense. Verse 16, and the disciples reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have no bread. 
Now, they knew there was something to grasp. There was a lesson, but they couldn't quite get to it. It was another epic fail in terms of trying to understand Jesus. And Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason? It's because you have no bread. Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? It wasn't about the bread. It never is. It's about what we can learn in or from the situation we find ourselves in. Jesus uses material things to teach us spiritual lessons. Their hearts were not hardened by sin or disobedience. Hardened here means things were not penetrating their hearts because they were thinking too much about material things and not enough about spiritual things. Living in a material world, they were material guys. Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? Don't you remember? I think what Jesus was trying to communicate is that you must look beyond your immediate situation, knowing God is prepping you for eternity. Listen for the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. This spiritual perception is aided by remembering previous lessons. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. If they had remembered, they could not have come to the conclusion, not in a million years, that Jesus was talking about who they should or should not buy real bread from because he could just provide bread anytime they needed it. He had multiplied five loaves, then seven loaves, and they had taken up leftovers. He could certainly multiply one loaf if it came to it. And so he said to them, how is it you do not understand? Now, this can be read more like try to understand. I like it that way. It's still a rebuke, but, but it's, a, it's an, a, an informative rebuke. Now that they knew he was talking spiritually using figurative language, they should try to understand. You know, a lot of times when people come in and they're looking for biblical counseling, biblical advice, it's uh, as simple as trying to get them to understand that their situation is not really what the issue is. It's what God wants to do in and through the situation. It isn't that your job is the problem. We have a lot of problems with our jobs, do we not? Uh, and that's because where we live and, and we work with people and people are weird. Everybody else besides me is just weird. That's always the way it is. It's always us versus them. And, but the problem isn't really with your job. I'm not saying there aren't problems. There are problems, but it's not with the job. It, the situation is the Lord wants to elicit a certain response from you in that situation. Is it anger and bitterness and resentment and revenge and all of that? Well, of course not. It's forgiveness and mercy and grace and long-suffering and patience. You're in that situation precisely so that you can learn a spiritual lesson. And that's why when we, uh, you know, jump from place to place, leave this church to go to that church, we never quite get that lesson. It's always other people. And, and you can tell that you, I, I do it, we all do it to a certain extent. You can hear it in people's voices when they're always talking about the problem being with the other person and the other people and the organization and the way it's run. You know what? Sure, all of that is probably wrong and it could be run better. You'd be, you're much smarter than anybody you work with. I agree. But it doesn't matter because God isn't as interested in that as he is in you becoming more like Jesus Christ. We want to be the sons of thunder. Hey, how about some lightning right now? Boom! 
Let's kill these guys. You're my boss. You're yelling at me. You don't think I'm doing a good job when I'm working really hard? Hey, Lord, right now would be a great time. And the Lord says, yeah, it'd be a great time for you to show love and long-suffering and mercy because you don't know what's behind the heart of that individual, the kind of struggle that that person is in, the kind of pain that person is in, who needs Jesus Christ. You're the Jesus that he sees. And so that's what the Lord is talking about here. He says, hey, try to understand. Now, we're told in Ephesians 2, 6, God has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The Christian is depicted as already being seated in heavenly places with Jesus. We remain on this material earth, of course, but our perspective at all times should be spiritual. I am never under my circumstances because I'm always seated in heaven, I'm always over my circumstances. Then the Apostle Paul said, if you were raised with Christ, this is Colossians 3, 1 and 2, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. The words in Ephesians depict us already in heaven, spiritually speaking, looking over our situation from above. The words in Colossians show us on the earth, materially speaking, but we're looking upward to receive wisdom and guidance from above. So in no sense are we ever stuck in a material situation. We live here, we're, you know, flesh and blood, we're this side of eternity, but everything has a spiritual import to us. We're going to seek the Lord right now as we do at the end of each service. Are you struggling in some situation? You probably are. Try to understand it spiritually. What response is Jesus trying to elicit from you? How is he using it to conform you into his image? I always put this caveat on it. It doesn't mean you can't quit your job. It doesn't mean you can't get a new job. It doesn't mean you can never change. It doesn't mean you have to work on your marriage because you're not supposed to break that, are you? And this, this same kind of thinking you know, it permeates marriages so much like, hey, I, I married the wrong person. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. My next marriage will be better. Yeah, that's not at all what we're talking about. If you're married and you're having problems, uh, they're resolvable in the Lord. Uh, but in, in general, I'm not saying you can't ever have any changes in your life, but the changes will come after you learn the lessons that God is trying to teach you for your own good and His glory. You probably pray every morning, Lord, use me. You just don't think he's using you when your boss has got his thumb on you and, and you think, you know, he's not appreciating you uh, and those kinds of things. Uh, and so that's what we're talking about. If you're not struggling in some situation, ask the Lord to enhance your spiritual awareness so that you can see around you more of what can be done in his power. He wants to show us all things all the time. And he is showing them to us, but we need to take the step to see them. Uh, we're not talking about anything really supernatural. We're not saying that you need a word of knowledge or anything like that. Just sometimes just, hey, do you know what just happened? Do you see what's happening spiritually? If you do, then step up to it and see what the Lord wants to do through you.